Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 76. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio, we have another guest, Phoebe Lewis. Hi, guys. And so today, we're going to be starting a new series entitled For Non-Gamers, in which we'll explore a number of topics that I think, as a gamer, have a lot of relativity for people who don't consider themselves gamers. And honestly, there's a lot of thoughtful material there to be explored, and Phoebe has graciously agreed to participate in this. And so my first question for you, Phoebe, is how you would identify or envision a gamer when I say that now, what comes into your head, and be as honest as you can. One of our contributors, Ivan Laskinek, made a point that I thought was really interesting. He said, make sure to consider the difference between gamers and people that play games. Tons of people drive cars every day, but a much smaller percentage of them are actual car enthusiasts. And for me, that just makes a lot of sense because I definitely enjoy playing games. I have words with friends on my phone. I play Candy Crush, but I don't consider myself a gamer because it's not something that I consider myself passionate about. But that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy it. So for me, I think the difference between a gamer and a non-gamer is an active admiration for or enthusiasm for games, whether it's a certain kind of game or just the act of gaming or the social aspect. But if you have that kind of drive, for me, that makes you a gamer. I think that's very well said. And I also really enjoyed that contribution because a number of people, as other contributors said, play games like those on their smartphone that you pointed out. And there is a stigma within the gaming community, not even addressing the gaming community from the outside, in which a lot of gamers don't have a great impression of mobile games. They see them as simplistic and largely because of their depth or length as games and even the means through which we control mobile games, which is touch and swiping. A lot of gamers don't think they are as complex, which is very interesting. And you and I might someday have a conversation just based on mobile gaming alone. I personally play several games on my iPhone, but I think gaming to me is identified as using either a PC for computer games or a console for video games. And I agree with you. It's definitely dependent upon how much one enjoys them or how much admiration or passion one has for them. And another contributor, Tom Hofner, said in his recent experience, particularly as a college professor, quote, I find that stigma against gamers is a vastly overblown concept. The perception of a gamer as a lonely basement dweller has dwindled away with the mainstreaming of speculative culture and the near universal numbers of mobile devices in ownership. And Alexandra Harms, another contributor, said, I have to say I do agree with Tom, at least to some extent. I'm only 24, but I remember when I was younger, my friend's moms would make weird comments to my mom about how gaming wasn't a real hobby and that she should worry about me, which she said jokes on them. I graduated top of my class and turned out to be a more or less capable adult. Maybe it's because I'm a girl and video games were seen as something that boys play. I don't know. Anyway, today all of my friends play games not just on their smartphones, and my students are obsessed with Minecraft or League of Legends. However, I do think that certain types of gamers are still being stigmatized. If you play a certain game competitively, for example, or really love first-person shooters, some people are going to label you as an antisocial creep. And one thing that really sticks out there, which I would love your opinion on, is this friend's mother's opinion of what a real hobby is or is not, which I find fascinating because many of us have jobs that we use to pay the bills. Many of us have diets that, of course, we use to stay alive. Those things within some realm are all similar because they serve a similar function in our lives. But hobbies, except for bringing us pleasure and passing the time in an interesting or exciting or nuanced way, 
have no real connection to one another. Some people that like knitting or needlepoint or any type of physical creation would differ slightly from artists who are making expressive pieces of work or from gamers who are enjoying, in my opinion, expressive pieces of work. As it relates to gaming, what do you think about this idea of a real hobby? What characteristics do you think this mother or perhaps you might find lacking in video games that don't make them a real hobby in some people's eyes? Well, I think that a lot of the hobbies that you mentioned, such as needlepoint, you know, reading, knitting, as you said, they're all sort of forms of creation. And even if when you're reading, it looks like you're being passive, you're sitting and you're not really doing much physically. The idea is that you're creating something in your mind. And I think that that might suggest something about the way that people see games as something that you are not creating, but something that you are consuming. And I think that that would be an understandable criticism, in my opinion, of games in that it looks to a bystander like you are consuming something akin to how you would consume a film or a TV show. And I think that if you don't understand games, it can seem passive in a way that doesn't involve any sort of mental activity like it does reading a book. And I think that that is probably one of the main criticisms that people have. And I, I do know that my mom has that criticism. I have two younger brothers and they both play and she always says, why don't you read a book? And right there you can see the sort of distinction there that if you're reading a book, you're doing something active. If you're playing a game, you're being passive. But I do think that there's more to games than that, but I can't claim to know a huge amount about them. That's totally fair. And I think as this series continues, you will come to understand gaming in a new way and better than you did before. And I hope the audience has a similar experience. I'm really glad you brought up the idea of active versus passive hobbies. And I would contend, despite what a lot of people perceive, that some games are very active. And I think there are certain iPhone or mobile games that I don't consider as active because their mechanisms are much more simplistic, which doesn't make them bad. But there are some games that we'll later discuss, which have very complex plots and involve player participation as the protagonist in very, very fascinating ways where you aren't given all of the information, much like a literary protagonist who might have memory issues or might not give all of the information as a narrator. And so there are amazing novelties within some games where the choices you make as a character involve morality and a knowledge of the politics within the world of that game that is profound to me. Because as a reader, I think you are absolutely active in imagining that world, but you aren't always active in participating in it because you aren't creating it. That is one thing that games very mysteriously allow in that they are creations of a company or a small group of people, but many of them nowadays increasingly allow for participation and creation. One of the games mentioned by Alexandra called Minecraft, which you may or may not have heard of, is incredibly popular and has no direct plot. It's a sandbox game, and there are many games like that where users simply create things and they're given the tools to make their world, make weapons with which they interact with enemy characters or other materials to build, essentially. And the game is whatever they make it. And I'd be curious to hear from you as a non-gamer if you see any parallels in non-gaming pursuits. That's really interesting. Sort of the idea that 
if I understand you correctly, that video games are sort of an opportunity to create a world rather than be presented with one. And I like that. I think that's really interesting. I'm not quite sure if I know of any non-game parallels, to be honest. (laughs) The closest thing that I can come to is LARPing, live action role playing, which I, you know, I've always thought has been sort of connected to the video game community. The idea that you can kind of create an alternate personality and kind of role play. That's the closest thing that I can think of. Well, I would present for your consideration, and I would love your thoughts, the idea of improvising on stage as creating a world or a create-your-own-adventure book where, much like gaming, you're given certain formulations and ideas, but they haven't been strung together yet, and that's the user's job. What do you think about those two examples? Oh, I mean, I love both of those examples. Improv is hilarious and always so fun, and I remember when I was a kid, I would sometimes read those make-your-own-adventure books, and I thought it was just so cool. And it was cool not because the stories were great. I mean, they were like, if you choose tab B, you jump into a thing of lava. Like they're not really developed stories, but they're really, really fun because you're given the opportunity to make that jump yourself. So I totally see what you're pointing at there. And I think there's a lot of merit in being given that authoritative control over your own story. And a number of contributors who volunteered to offer their thoughts were male. And I don't think that's coincidental. Some of the people on the Facebook group that I'm a part of, which follows a video gaming podcast, were willing to contribute. And most of them were male, except for Alexandra. And friends that I asked to contribute were also male. I think both from the outside and within gaming, there's this perception that it is mostly for men, stereotypically white men. Many of the protagonists in games are white males unless you choose an alternative. They are the default. And in your thinking about stigma against gamers, and also as a woman, I would love your perspective. Well, I mean, I've never been particularly drawn to gaming personally, so I can't say that I have experienced any of this myself because it's not a world that I have tried to break into. But I do very much understand and recognize the sort of gender disparity going on, even in the way that gaming is depicted. Like if you watch a cartoon, I'm not a huge fan of South Park. I don't really watch it a lot, but I do really remember this one pretty gnarly episode where it's a bunch of guys and it's all guys and they're playing video games and they literally cannot move from their consoles. And it gets to the point where they like become huge masses of people just eating so much and not even getting up to go to the bathroom. But the thing that really struck me in that instance was that there were no women involved. It was literally taken as a fact that it would be a men-only activity. And that's always been interesting to me. Like, why is that? Maybe it has something to do with what you said about sort of being able to choose your own narrative. Maybe there's some sort of underlying correlation there, and that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. One theory I have is that the games that have been created typically don't appeal to what the feminine ideal is believed to be. There are very many violent video games, and at least in our society, women are not taught to be violent, and I would contend whether it's natural or not, men are in many ways encouraged or subtly encouraged to act in an aggressive or violent way, and so that's why those games appeal, if on any level, subconsciously, to something that men are taught to be. And there aren't very many games that appeal to what we think women should be. And I say that with a tone of skepticism because these are all constructed things. Do you think there are video game types that would appeal more to what we believe women should want? 
Again, I don't know enough about gaming to really pick and choose specific models, but I do think that Sims is a good example of something that as a woman I have felt more drawn to and I know that my female friends and I were really into it. Sometimes we'll get together with a couple drinks and we'll make a fake group of friends modeled after ourselves and that's really fun. Maybe it's because Sims is approachable for someone who doesn't have a gaming background. There's not really much that you have to learn. There's not really a learning curve. You just kind of make a person, make it look like you, and then you make it do weird things. And there's something very fun in that. I'm really glad that you bring up the gaming knowledge that you might have because much like books or any media, really movies, for example, in games, there are sequels and oftentimes they build on mechanics in previous games. And so if you're thrown into a world where you need to trade certain resources to get certain other resources for your character, or you need to level up in a very specific way, making your character strong and resilient enough to survive be it combat or just the general environment of that world, if you don't know how to physically maneuver your character or how to interact with what is essentially a program, then you won't understand what's going on and you will be lost. And increasingly, games have become more complex. Everyone or mostly everyone has heard of Mario, which I think is beautifully developed because the rules aren't explained to you. And in the first level, World 1-1, a Goomba or an enemy walks across the screen towards your character. And if you don't jump, you're killed. And so eventually you learn as a player well, I have to jump to get past this. And you do, and you either stomp on that enemy and destroy it or get past it. And from that point, and there were games before that, games have become increasingly more complex. Pong was one of the original games, and that's pretty self-explanatory to a lot of people. You figure it out rather quickly. And to me, what's beautiful about gaming is how complex it has gotten. There are entire plot lines and games whose story arcs span multiple entries into that series, or you see different perspectives of different characters. And I do think to a degree, the idea of gaming as a man's club is accurate because it's been marketed that way and sold that way. And while there are definitely women who play games, maybe game developers and definitely advertisers don't recognize that. And so they aren't cast in that light. But just like books or other media that you could advertise to be consumed, I think it's all about the perspective you take. And I think, especially given that many games show human characters, there's always something relatable there if you dig deep enough and try to relate to those characters. And I'm thrilled that you brought up The Sims because the genre of simulation games are very interesting to me. And there's always fun, quirky things happening that can be very easily explained to non-gamers. And so if anything, I think those games are a great entry point into gaming because they're simple to understand. Like Mario, the mechanics are right there. There's nothing complex and anything that is can be looked up. And one reason I actually wanted to record this with you is because several months ago when we were talking and I mentioned that I was a gamer, you seemed surprised. And there clearly is a stigma, which I don't blame you for. I think a lot of us have it about what a gamer is. And I didn't fit that mold in your mind. And so again, with as much honesty as you're willing to muster, what did surprise you about the fact that I was and am in fact a gamer? Well, you're a very thoughtful and passionate and socially adept and kind and good person, which, <laughs> <laughs> so to all the listeners out there, I can confirm this, but those are not necessarily qualities that I would attribute to a gamer for better or for worse. I admit my bias. To be completely frank, as someone who doesn't play games, my first reaction to the idea of a gamer is someone who is inside a closed room with the blinds pulled down. That's kind of what I think of. I think of someone who is connecting more with a screen than with a person. 
That being said, Kip, you and I took a really awesome anthropology course a year ago now, and it was on the mediums of connecting people through different forms of technology. So we talked about communities and chat rooms. We talked about communities over email. And I think, you know, tied up in that is the community of gaming. And that really kind of opened my eyes and made me kind of reevaluate the way that I understand gaming. And that's why I appreciate talking to you about it, because it really makes me challenge the way that I understand communities, because I think gaming is being part of a community, but because it's not visible and tangible, people immediately discredit it. And I say that because I have done that. And I appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable and to openly express your bias because how else will we have conversation? And also, this series is meant for people like you and many who don't play games to give them some perspective on how I and others like me might feel. And I'm also thrilled you bring up the social aspect because there is a lot of social interaction going on in games, even if it is not physical. And I would parallel it with texting or phone calls, which also have no tangible evidence of the person you're communicating with. But because they are socially accepted by larger culture and larger society, people don't question the peculiarity of sending a digital series of texts to someone who may or may not see them. But in games, you can, in a digital sense, of course, collaborate to build a town in some games and actually construct it from the ground up or to fight a monster with several other players. And again, it's not real and I acknowledge this, but in the mind, you do conceive of the teamwork and collaboration that's going on. And to me, that's really exciting because in our real world, aside from parallels like hunting, I can't fight a common foe with my friends without being violent and I'm not a particularly violent person. And so that's something to me that is valuable about games. I think we do often have socially unacceptable impulses. And in some games, I feel as long as you recognize the disparity between reality and the world of the game, you can explore some unacceptable behaviors such as being violent towards certain characters because the game world isn't real. But I know that a lot of people, especially those watching friends play games, it's horrifying to see players treat non-player characters with such aggression and violence. And that's a very real concern, and I totally understand that. Although as someone who isn't violent, I think it comes down to thoughtfulness and being aware. But as a non-gamer, does that scare you to think about how violent certain games can be? And do you think that correlates to the gamers themselves becoming violent? Or do you think, again, it's a case of paranoia combined with the stigma against gaming? I don't think that I can answer definitively on either side. I think that there is merit to both arguments. I do think that there is something to be said for maybe not scaling down the violence, but just taking a really hard look at it. I just really think that if you fill your mind and your time with a certain thing, whether it be a violent game or a certain author or, you know, a recipe that you always make, that's going to kind of start to define who you are. You're going to start defining yourself as that person who loves Dickens or that person who bakes a really good cake, for lack of better examples. And so I think that if you play very violent games, that can also similarly become part of how you define yourself and see yourself. And for me, there is an inherent danger in that and that you can sort of start seeing that violence as a part of yourself. And then that starts transcending the medium of games, perhaps, and then takes on a life of its own. This is the more paranoid perspective, but one that I do sometimes take part in, to be honest, because sometimes I look at the games that people play and they are horrific. They're so brutal. And I just wonder how useful that is, especially, I mean, if you're into gaming for the sort of collaboration, what collaboration is there in beheading someone? 
what is that doing for a community if that's what you're doing on screen? And maybe that's just a personal choice. I mean, I don't like violence, so that's my bias right there. But part of me wonders what the merit is in having so much grotesque violence. You know, like, what does it do for the aesthetic experience? I think that's a really good question and one I'm not entirely sure I could answer. I guess I would say that the closest I could come to explaining it is that in certain contexts, again, within the world of the game, you can take the violence out of the situation and it is ridiculous, but much like everything ever, context is essential. And so in the realm of a game series such as Assassin's Creed, where you play a character who is an assassin, your targets are characters defined as evil, those that you need to kill in order to protect the society of the time. And they take place in real world history. So Italy in the 13th century or London in the 19th century. And the interesting thing about those games, again, to add to the gray area and complexity of those games, is that in certain situations, your character, the protagonist, will assassinate certain targets only to be told in the dying breaths of those characters that you are wrong and that they actually have a way of improving the world and that you're just seeing their political or economic dominance as corruption when in fact they have a plan for the city that you've just destroyed by killing them and taking them out of the machine so to speak. And so I think there are great games where killing is addressed directly by the game creators and saying, you can't just go around killing any character, even if you believe you are in the right, because it's not that simple. And so I think games increasingly are more aware of that. There are absolutely still franchises like Call of Duty, where violence seems rampant. And I am admittedly not a Call of Duty gamer. But I also think it's interesting when you take historical contexts into gaming, because there are many historically based games where your character is fighting against those who were seen at the time as evil. There are countless World War II games where players fight the Nazis, for example. And I think it's interesting that we've crystallized this perception of people as evil and therefore okay to kill in the world of a game because of their beliefs or values. And I too am not a violent person and very much dislike it, but I do find it curious that that game worlds will justify the violence because of the characters perceived on the receiving end of that violence. I would also like to talk about the complexity within genres of games, and to the best of your ability, what genres do you think exist in the world of gaming? Oh man, okay, let's see. Well, obviously you've got the kind of like mystery game, and just a little caveat, I used to play this really fun game. And here we go with the community. I mean, it forged a community through playing it in collaboration. So I uh, have experienced that myself. I was in a couple plays over the summer and backstage, we would be pretty bored for stretches of time. So we would gather around a computer and play this like mystery, I think it was called Submachine, really fun game where you, you had to like find the key so you could unlock yourself from a room or something. So there's that. And then there's the putting yourself in a historical context game, which honestly seemed pretty interesting to me, what you described in Assassin's Creed. I really appreciated how you described their addressing death. I thought that was actually really cool and I had no idea they did that. So that's really interesting. And then I guess you've got sort of more the logic-based games. I'm thinking more of Jewel Blaster and Fruit Blaster or whatever they call and those tend to be more on iPhones, I think. Sort of more games that you can play with your thumb that don't really have a narrative. Yeah, it's kind of as much as I know, to be honest. I'm not very well versed. 
Well, some that I'm sure will sound familiar to you once I describe them. There's first-person shooters where you are looking visually through the eyes of the character you're controlling who has a gun of some sort, whether it's sci-fi or real. There's third-person shooters where you're over the shoulder of that character. And at some point, I'd be very curious to research the psychological difference between being in the body of the person you're playing as and looking behind them, because I suspect there is a degree of psychological separation when you don't think you physically are the protagonist but rather your camera is located right behind them. There are platformers like Mario, which have also gotten more complex over time. Characters have double jumps or jetpacks, so you aren't simply limited to real-world single jumps to get over gaps or other dangerous obstacles. There are simulation games like The Sims, which are really interesting because many of them increasingly take place in somewhat real scenarios where you're a farmer and winter is coming and so you could very easily lose the game immediately. There are very few tutorials or explanations given and so your family and you might starve to death in this game which as close as it can be to reality is very brutal. There are games where in a story context kind of like this game you described you have to free yourself from something but in really really great narrative games you're not even told who you are or why you are where you are and in some cases if you as the player don't explore the world and find notes telling you a little bit about your world, you could beat the game without knowing who you were as the player, which I find fascinating because no novel or movie as a basic comparison that I've read or watched has ever done that. And I find it amazing to think that you could have a four plus hour experience where you don't know who you are. And there are several kinds of fun puzzle or logic games where you're completing tasks and sometimes you have a purpose for it and other times not. And again, the narrative isn't always given, which I find amazing. There are point-and-click adventure games, which are older and were typically for older PCs, where you had to get certain objects and pair them together. And those were really fascinating back in the day in the 80s and 90s because the explanations were so limited and the logic behind them was so wild. If you didn't pick up a piece of cheese early on in the game, then you couldn't give it to a mouse much later in the game who then wouldn't give you a key at that point in a trade, which then wouldn't allow you to unlock a certain room to progress further. And it's amazing to think that players somehow figure that out without the internet, which has given gamers like myself the option to look up a problem if we stumble upon it which again, there is no parallel for. In a novel, if you're confused, you keep reading. In a movie, it's linear. You keep watching. But in a game, you can get stuck on something and stop consuming that medium because you don't know how to progress. And that's what I find fascinating, that collaboration can happen in real time in a game, but can also happen through friends and other people who have played the game saying, did you try this? Or here's the answer. This is how I did it. And that's something that I find very interesting. To close, I would like to refer to another contributor, Will Quam, who said, The interesting thing about stigma against gamers is that I was never really aware of it or felt the opposite of it, if anything. My parents never let us have a gaming system when I was growing up, and I always desperately wanted one. On long trips, my parents let us borrow Game Boys, and it was the pinnacle of entertainment for me. Same when we would borrow the neighbor's N64 for the occasional weekend. Playing video games is all I would do when given the opportunity. When the more advanced systems came out, I would go over to a friend's house just to play games, Halo especially. I was so jealous of the fact that they had gaming systems and could play whenever they wanted to. Now I have access to a PS4. Will I ever own a system of my own? I don't know. There's still something very social about video games for me, and I can only play by myself for like a half hour. 
And one thing I find interesting there is this association of gaming systems with status, because not everyone has a gaming system, not everyone wants one. I'm intrigued by Will's parents' approach to it, because many parents, I think, have a very large concern about the amount of time it takes up and the worlds you can get sucked into, and it's understandable, but I would also encourage any parents out there who are concerned about games to play the games your children want to play and see what they find appealing, and in many cases, play cooperatively with them, because many games are multiplayer and allow you to be a part of that experience. And I think in short or in long bursts, that can be really interesting. And I'd be curious to know if anything in his response brought up any thoughts for you. I was just really intrigued by the way that you were encouraging parents to play games with their children, because I think that that is something that parents, as you mentioned, really shy away from. The idea that games are what children do inevitably makes them antisocial. We must draw them away from them and bring them back into real life. That sort of pulling back to reality. The thought that came to mind when you were talking about that was, I read a couple interesting articles about the benefits of playing games. And we've been talking a lot about the social benefits and sort of the social aspects of playing games. But I read this really interesting article about how a group of medical robotic engineers were working on simulations. They really looked just like video games. They had consoles, they had their little controllers, and they were making these virtual games, basically, so that medical students could practice going through surgical exercises. And as a way to test it, they brought in different people and encouraged them to, you know, try and beat the game. So as a way to see, like, the different levels of the game that they had created for training purposes. And one thing that they found was that high schoolers tended to beat the medical students by a lot. And one of the reasons behind that is because high school students tended to play two and a half hours to four hours of video games a day. I thought that was super interesting. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a group of high schoolers who play an absurd amount of games a day, and that is perhaps reason for alarm. On the other hand, you've got a whole crop of younger people who are incredibly adept at manipulating the sort of virtual reality in a way that I think that generations, you know, maybe just five to 10 years ahead of where we are now in our 20s are not. And so I'm really interested to see how that's going to change things in the professional sphere in a couple of years down the line. How is that going to change robotics? How is that going to change medicine? How is it going to change advertising? I think it's really an interesting way of manipulating a new sphere. And I'd be interested to see what happens with it down the line. As would I. And I'm glad that you brought up two and a half to four hours of gaming as being something that's absurd because I know people who watch TV or movies for similar, if not longer, periods of time. And I think there are associations, cultural or otherwise, with consuming certain media. And I would say personally that to me, eight hours of gaming is very different than eight hours of a movie. And I recognize that they aren't quite the same, but there are, with many games, and I would say inherently with all games, participatory elements because you have to play to move something forward, whereas with a movie or TV, and in some cases with some books that I would say are more poorly written, you don't have to do much. You're just sort of there. And I'm not saying that I prize video games above all other media, but I do think our stigma or associations often prevent us from seeing them in parody. And I also think that it's interesting that you talk about these medical students and potential real-world applications because virtual reality is currently a mode of exploration 
for a lot of game developers. And there are people who theorize that virtual reality, if made very realistic, could be used therapeutically for people suffering from PTSD or other mental illness because the world could be created and turned off at any time. And so there's a degree of control there to help the cognitive and behavioral processes of the patient. And I think there are a lot of real world applications if medical students don't have cadavers or real items or people to work on, then I think it makes sense if the simulation is very accurate. And increasingly with human technology progressing at a very rapid rate, I don't think that's unreasonable. And I would contend that comes from our fascination as people with virtual worlds, which has immediately translated into gaming, but could translate into other virtual experiences. And I would also add that I think part of the allure of virtual reality is that it isn't defined by the rules of the real world. And one thing that my friends and I like to do with Sims is really messed up stuff. We'll lock them in a room and set it on fire, or we'll put them in a pool and take away the stepladder, or we'll do things that are like kind of sadistic, which is actually, you know, now that I say that, coming back to the violence that we were talking about. So I'm not entirely guilt-free in that area, but part of the fun of it is seeing what would happen if, what if. Absolutely. And I don't consider you a violent or sadistic person. And I think that many of us, perhaps all, I will never know, have those impulses. And if gaming can provide a safe and distinctly virtual means of letting that out, as I think I said earlier, I don't have a huge problem with that. And so before we close the episode, Phoebe, and I admit this was a bit of a longer one. So thanks to those who listened. And thanks to you for being here and sitting through it. What would you like our audience to think about or ask themselves after listening to this conversation about stigma? I would encourage all the listeners out there to maybe not re-examine gaming, but re-examine your response to gaming. When you talk to a friend who plays a game, listen more to the way that you react to that conversation, because I think that you can learn a lot from listening to yourself, not in a narcissistic way, but in a very stark and sometimes uncomfortable way. Just see what your reactions are, examine those, sit with those, and just see what you can learn from that. I completely agree. I think listening to yourself with this and various other topics we've discussed is essential, especially in upcoming episodes for non-gamers in this series, watching your own reactions and seeing what that says about you and the society of which you are a part, and maybe even the family and friends with whom you associate, how those influences have sculpted your perceptions, and if this conversation has in any way altered your perceptions. And I hope it and others like it may come to give you a more informed perspective, if not a different one. And I would like to thank our contributors, Will Quam, Tom Hofner, Alexandra Harms, Ivan Leskinek, and Mark Webster for sharing their thoughts. And Phoebe, I'd of course love to thank you for coming on, and I'm looking forward to future episodes with you. It's been a real pleasure. And for those curious about our next episode in the series, Phoebe and I are actually going to play through a short game and we're going to hear what she thought of it afterwards. And I'm very excited to see what your experience and response are. I am so ready for this. And so for those who have thoughts or comments, we want this to be a conversation among, not a conversation between. So please reach out to us and share your thoughts and comments and opinions. You can connect with us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You are also free to email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. Our website is strideandsaunter.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to and reviewing the show and also sharing it with a friend you think 
could learn or benefit from this conversation in any way. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.